Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. He said, you need to try harder to, um, to work with acceptance and give up hope. And so this is like a tenet for me now, like a key foundational stone. You can accept things and not have to give up hope. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and episode 79 with Gail Muller. When she was a teenager, Gail was told she'd be in a wheelchair by the age of 40. Fast forward to recent years and at the age of 41, she set out to hike the Appalachian Trail, one of the world's toughest treks. Gail has spent most of her life dealing with chronic pain, battling a mystery condition that left her in constant agony and feeling as though there really wasn't much to live for. This episode is a roller coaster of emotions. It's hard hitting, deep, scary, and serious, but it's also funny, kind, and immensely hopeful. After I pressed stop on the recording, I remember feeling that conversations don't get much more real and honest than this, and sitting down with Gail was a proper reminder of why I love doing this so much. Before we begin, I'll take a quick moment, as usual these days, to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Gail Muller. Can you begin with a logical place to start? by introducing yourself and telling me who you are, what you do, what you used to do, where you're from. I can. So I'm Gail, Gail Muller, and I'm from Cornwall. And that's probably one of the most important things to know about me is that I'm Cornish um, and uh, very proud to be Cornish. So it also meant uh, means that I grew up by the sea and uh, lots of outdoors, uh, thankfully, and I'm very grateful for that. I am currently... I don't really know what I am. I guess I'm just uh, an explorer, but not of like the Amazon and the Congo, just of life and people and adventure and my boundaries and um, the human condition, I think. That's what I'm an explorer of and what we can all be. What I am also is a teacher um, and I'm very proud to be a teacher. I've been a teacher for many years, lots of different ages, subjects mostly like history and English and philosophy and humanities. And that has definitely bled into how I see the world, how I relate to people, how I understand people as I travel and explore myself and the world. So I'm also, oh yeah, I'm a writer. <laughs> recently, I've always been a writer, but I'm more recently like a proper published writer with my book that will be published on the 7th of September, which I'm extremely excited about and really proud of. Um, it's a good book. And I read it back and I enjoyed it. And I thought, oh, crikey, did I write this? So that's me. Yeah, I'm out here currently coming to you from somewhere on the Puget Sound, north of Seattle, in a house of some people I met about a week ago who've gone on holiday and let me stay here because we all got on really well. <laughs> so that's, that's me, Matt. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Um, that's a really good intro. I like that you're somewhere interesting that you're not really supposed to be or expected to be. Um, we'll come back to that. So obviously you've got a very interesting story that I think we could probably talk about for quite a long time that seems to span a fair few years and chapters. But I wondered if you could tell me about what you were like as a child and what life was like. Um, yes, absolutely I can. As a child, I was um, 
I guess back then you would have called it a tomboy, but now we don't think about things in those kind of black and white um polarizing ways that you're one thing or another so I guess now I would just be a very outdoorsy wild kid that loved climbing trees um, my family um, have always been sailors my and and seafarers if you like my father and his brother were champion gig rowers and skiff rowers in Cornwall when they were young up you know all the creeks and the little towns and villages won lots of championships and then I went into gig rowing as well my sister was represented Great Britain as a sailor for many many years of her life and was in um, you know was trialing out for the Olympics etc in sailing so we're a family that spends a lot of time outdoors not a you know privileged in our own way but not a wealthy family just a family that had the privilege of being brought up by the sea so it was right there on our doorstep for us to access which um, is a a fundamental part of me being by the sea it's where I feel most at home I love the mountains but being by the sea is so important um and uh yeah so my childhood was very carefree thankfully and allowed to roam and wander the fields by my parents house with my little backpack on and my father was also an engineer and gearbox specialist so he had lots of overalls that were always covered in oil and grease and as well as being a sailing coach so I had a mini pair of overalls like his with my little name on to help him in the garage and you'll find me roaming around up trees covered in cow pats in my um uh, replica of my dad's overalls <laughs> being yanked out of trees by my ankles to go Go and clean up and do proper sociable things like go to family parties so yeah childhood was fabulous and I'm forever grateful to my parents for that what did you <laughs> it almost sounds like a silly question but what did you want to be when you grew up oh um I love that question. It doesn't get asked enough. In fact, for my 30th birthday party, um, this is an aside, the, uh, the theme was, because I don't often do themed parties, just for the big ones, the theme was come as what you wanted to be when you grew up. So everybody came as like a professional rugby player or a ballerina or, and, um, you know, an astronaut. So I um, went as Indiana Jones because that's who I wanted to be most of my life. And in fact, to the point that my degree at Warwick University is archaeology and ancient classical history with Egyptology, because I really, really still wanted to be Indiana Jones. Um, obviously, now another tricky topic. You can't be Indiana Jones because he's a colonial person that went and stole loads of people's artifacts. And with grown up eyes, I can see that. But um, at the time, it was just this spirit of adventure linked with history. And that's a huge part of how I explore the world, too. So wherever I go, whatever I do, I'm all often always researching where I am trying to speak to local people understand the culture and the background of where I am which makes being somewhere so much more profoundly exciting than just whistle stopping through going "Ooh, that's pretty taking a picture and leaving again so Indiana Jones and a vet and a train driver all together <laughs> that's an interesting comment that would be an interesting LinkedIn profile <laughs> wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't it nearly as interesting as my current one <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true actually um so what did you do um I I what did I do I w worked as a journalist for a while I worked on super yachts um I worked on Lord and Lady Sainsbury's private yacht um and went all around on their yacht that was wonderful experience learned a lot um, I even learnt celestial navigation from the skipper. I did night watches with him on passages and stuff in my early 20s, which was really fun. Uh, then I jumped off that boat and uh, after my master's in broadcast journalism that I'd done, I picked up being print journalist in the Balearic Islands. So that was another whistle-stop tour. One day I'm interviewing the local dog's home people and the next day I'm chasing Gwyneth Paltrow around the mountains with a photographer waiting for her to, I don't know, poor woman turn left so I can, you can get a photo and I can shout a question out of the window but when I realized that really wasn't for me <laughs> I felt absolutely awful I'm like can we not just let Gwyneth Paltrow live and the photographer and the editor are like no it's our job what are you talking about so uh sacked that off and um <laughs> came back to London worked for the post-production company called The Mill which was owned by Ridley Scott who did like the post-production for Gladiator they won an Oscar one of my jobs was to polish the Oscar in the foyer didn't have a high-end job with them <laughs> just with the Oscar polisher and like the runner Is that true? dispatch <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> 
<laughs> I maybe only polished it once or twice because believe it or not, there was I polished an Oscar. There was quite uh, you know, there was quite a lot of competition amongst the runners for the Oscar polishing. <laughs> Um, it, that, was, it was rare. Is that, is that uh, on your CV? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but maybe it should be. I don't think I've really said that out loud for loads of years. In fact, sometimes I think, did I imagine that? No, there's lots of things in my life I do think, did I imagine that? But it did really happen. So that was fun, and um, then I then I uh, decided to be a teacher because my mum's a teacher she's a phenomenal teacher and I always knew that teaching was a big part of what I wanted to do so I, I got accepted onto the fast track program from the government and at the same time accepted into Exeter University for my PGCE in, in history and citizenship and then worked in my beloved Cornwall in Camborne Science and International Academy I think it's called now but uh, a, a school where I learned ever such a lot and had the privilege of meeting amazing children from all kind of backgrounds in Cornwall and I taught for quite a long time. And then after teaching there, I was seconded to the European Commission by the British government as like a representative of British teaching and was part of the commission's um, European school system where they have like, they had at the time 14 kind of class one schools where they'd send teachers that were selected from each of the European countries to teach people's children who were working for the commission in different research areas um in a nutshell so it was it was really quite a prestigious lovely thing to 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 go and do did that for a few years and then I moved kind of one more year at teaching in Cornwall and then I moved into the world of international tutoring so I now and still do when I can work with families um who may travel who may live abroad so before christmas i did three months in the bahamas tutoring for a, a family sometimes i have to sign non-disclosure agreements sometimes I, I six months in bali a few weeks in switzerland and those wonderful opportunities afford my ability to then go and travel and to have other expeditions and to write so i get to do both things luckily in my life i get to teach work with wonderful students and um Hopefully, I'd like to be able to do that pro bono with students that can't afford private tutors going forward, part of my plan. Um, and then I get to travel and write as well, which is tiring because I'm always moving, but it's great. Yeah, it sounds great. Sounds like you've got a good idea of what it is you want to be doing now. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess it's taken a long time to hone exactly what I want to do that feels that it's not just money making. Part of the reason I didn't want to go any further in the whole post-production, there's a lot of adverts that were made, really clever adverts by super talented agencies in London. And, you know, the ability to have that marketing mind where you're creating such clever ways to sell people stuff is impressive. But for me, it became hollow because I don't want to be selling people stuff. That's not who I am. There's nothing wrong with it but it's definitely taken a long time to chisel down to what is meaningful for me that makes me money but that also getting rid of the guilt where you feel it's okay to make money doing things that could also be free and would help people more so it's hard to chisel down that balance you've got to have an income to make yourself happy and sustainable and then hopefully later once you've made some money and there are ways to pay back to those that can't afford the skills that you've now got um, so that's where I'm at hopefully plus writing which is my passion I suppose in a way you've had quite a complicated life like sometimes I interview people and they say yeah I always wanted to be an explorer and then I went on an expedition when I was 20 and now I am one yeah no not that simple the um the core driving force for me in all if I look back at everything I've ever done that's led me to now is following my instincts my gut as to what feels good and right rather than what people think I should be doing um, and I guess I've got a little bit of kind of my own moral compass in there am I doing what feels good for more than just myself and finally it's a huge curiosity about people that's the only reason I'm out exploring that I do the things I do aside from maybe my chronic pain overcoming my chronic pain which I'm sure will come to but for me it's it, with my teaching with the kind of students I thrive by teaching which is neurodiverse students and then in my explorations of the world it's all about the people you meet the listening the watching um, and the respecting how other people live yeah and I mean I was about to go there so it was the perfect segue but one thing that you haven't mentioned that came up in all of my research was chronic pain I realise it's obviously, well, 
not a touchy subject, but it's a serious subject. And I wondered if you could talk me through what that involves. Yes, of course. And I didn't lead with it because it does always come up and it is like a fundamental shaping part of my personality and ways that I can help other people, I hope. So I, I was um, the wild outdoors, sporty, boisterous youth. And then I was, you know, I did cross country running. I was never a pro athlete. It was never, you know, someone who was going to compete professionally, but I was very active um, with I was stroke grower for the gig rowing team, etc, etc. And then in my early, maybe early 20s, mid early 20s, I started to suffer from um, pain that wouldn't go away through my hip, through my back. Now, when I was in my teens, I had, my feet had always turned in. When I was born, they were turned in like little bananas. And that can happen to some babies. And I remember wearing casts very, when I was a toddler, I had casts, open casts on the back of my legs and ankles to kind of reopen my feet and shape them out. When I was about 14, my uncle very kindly um, paid for me to go and see a specialist in London because he was worried when I walked that I was just like a little, you know, like little penguin, slap, 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 slap feet, but facing inwards. <laughs> He's like, I'm not sure that's going to be good in the long term so I went to the specialist and uh walked on those treadmills where you get filmed and and then after that mum wasn't I was like leave me alone mum so the doctor was in the room and he was just mumbling I, d I guess at the time he, whoever this chap was he wasn't very good at relating to young people and wasn't particularly I don't know he he just said to me yes and if you don't get your feet broken and reshaped uh you'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 40 so think about that and we can maybe help with that. And so it's really bad and it's going to ruin your knees and your hips and you won't be able to walk. So I was like, oh, okay, cheers. Okay, mom, let's go get some, let's go and get a croissant or whatever, or a bun or a muffin. I definitely wouldn't have wanted a croissant at age 14. Um, <laughs> that's older Gail talking. I would have said, I want a Coke. Yeah, I didn't tell mom. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh shit, so I'm screwed. Well, let's forget about that because it feels a bit overwhelming so I just kind of carried on and then in my 20s I got you know hip pain back pain didn't want to bother the doctor ultimately bothered the doctor after a, a year or, or so of it being really bad you know like couldn't walk that far without really hurting smashing so many ibuprofen paracetamols and I don't like bothering the doctors doctors make me feel like I'm um I don't know. I just feel like there's many more important people who need to go and see doctors. I'm okay. And um, so when I went to see the doctor, I was like, hi, oh, I'm sorry. I always start when I go to the doctor, like going, sorry, um, I've got a bad back. Sorry, I'll go. They're like, yeah, everyone's got a bad back. I'm like, okay, I thought so. I'll see you later. <laughs> Do some Pilates, take a paracetamol. Yep, done that. But okay, yep, sorry. So uh, that was the way it was for a couple of years. Felt embarrassed about going, still wasn't going away. People were like, should you still be hurting this much? Go and see this, go and see that. Tried everything. In the end, they did some MRI scans. Not much going on. No one knew what was happening. And then it got worse and worse and worse. And it would ebb and flow, get worse, get better, get worse, get better. And that sounds okay with the better. But actually, when you don't know what's making it better or worse, it's like your body's gaslighting you because you're like, okay, so why is it better today when it's been bad for a week and I haven't really been able to go out for a week? But today I feel fine. Number one, will anybody believe me? Number two, if they believe I'm fine, will they even believe that it hurt? Number three, what did I do? Like I had, is it because I've had three eggs rather than a piece of toast for breakfast this morning and carbohydrate is inflaming me and making me feel in pain so I definitely should only eat three eggs you know a day now because that's what's cured my pain so it's just constant oh no the next day it's terrible again so it's like why wasn't the eggs what could it possibly be it's because I had a glass of wine last night so there's no answer and I used to sleep like on it was so painful in my hip and my muscles were always in spasm I used to sleep on a like a a tinned tomatoes can because it was the only thing that could press into my hip enough to almost press a trigger point all night long that would allow my hip to relax over it so that I could get a couple like a half an hour of sleep here and there I barely slept for years because the pain was so bad up in the night stretching every 10 minutes um sobbing a number of times through the night and eventually I went back to the doctor and said I just really I'm not coping I love my job and I'm like a walking zombie and I'm not any good for these kids so they're like oh I think we're probably at this stage we just can send you to the pain clinic so I'm like what's the pain clinic turns out back then pain clinic is like the knackers yard where you go because no one really knows 
what to do with you. So they're just going to turn you into cat food and, and pretend that, you know, that you're not going to your GPs anymore. And if you're not turning up at your GPs anymore, clearly someone's cured you because they don't know where you are, but you're in the pain clinic. Um, so I, uh, I spent some time there with them. They injected me in the spine thinking it was nerves, did a nerve blocker. They did this, did that. Like I was very willing always been super willing to do whatever it takes to get better we're talking a period of now like eight years and um I would say to them can you explain what's happening in my body even if you can't cure it can you explain it so I feel like I have some agency over this pain I'm a I'm a smart driven positive minded woman I am I'm a member of my community I pay my taxes, I contribute to society, and I'm falling through the cracks with this pain that no one's talking to me about, with, you know, depression is coming, exhaustion, chronic fatigue, um, social anxiety, because I have to keep cancelling things, and I feel embarrassed when I go out that people are going to say, where were you, where were you, you're normally so much fun, so somebody please, can you help me, um, and no one could really do that, and in the end, the pain clinic, one particular chap, Bearing in mind, this was a long time ago, and I've spoken to people at the pain clinic recently, and it's not like this anymore. He said, you need to try harder to, this is a paraphrase, obviously, you need to try harder to um, to work with acceptance and give up hope. And so this is like a tenet for me now, like a key foundational stone. You can accept things and not have to give up hope. You can accept where you are and always hope it can be better. But for him, in his message, those were mutually exclusive. You can't have hope if you have acceptance. So you need to accept that your life is going to change. You need to get a disability badge for your car. You need to prepare to lose your job and give up work. You need to come to our therapy sessions where you accept that you're not going to get better. And you need to accept that you might be in a wheelchair and that your prognosis is lifelong and you won't be able to do the things that you used to do. And if you keep hoping, that things will be different, you are going to crash and burn and uh, the disappointment will take you down. Now, I know that, I know on some level what he was trying to say. He's not a cruel man. He's a probably a very logical, efficient practitioner. He wasn't trying to depress me because I know that when people don't accept where they are, they can cause themselves more pain. They can put themselves in precarious positions. What he was saying was, um, don't expect a magic cure because there isn't one and we don't know what's wrong with you. So I, he gave me all these pills, gabapentin and some other really big pills that I took willingly for about two weeks and they made my mouth dry. I couldn't drive. I was like a zombie all the time. So in the end, I said, no, thank you. Thank you for all you've tried to do. Take your pills back. I don't want any of them. For me, it didn't make sense with people with chronic conditions and chronic illnesses. Like chronic pain is a huge problem. But people give you pills to mask the problem. Well, they did. They don't do quite so much now. So I've had a codeine addiction for 15 years. And I didn't even know I had a codeine addiction until I ran out of them on the Appalachian Trail. Fun times. Um, <laughs> cold turkey in the Appalachians. Um, that's a whole other story. So I said to him, basically, my body used to work. Now my body doesn't work and it seems to be against me. There is something that went wrong. So I'm going to chase it down and I'm going to try and fix it my own way. So bye. I don't want to come back to the pain clinic anymore. Good luck. See ya. So, um... I left, wouldn't take any of the pills. I took the codeine, of course. I'm not stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> I needed that. <laughs> not condoning opiate addiction, everyone. Um, three days max from Boots, three days. Um, and then I uh, traveled around trying everything under the sun. I was like, what's zero balancing? Going to try that. Pilates. I mean, everyone loves Pilates. That made a huge difference. Swimming. Oh, fucking boring as shit. But I'll do it. Um, and then I got to like it. And then it was like, oh. <laughs> massage, meditation, blue light therapy, blue light glasses, cold water therapy, mindfulness. Um, chiropractic, osteopathy, physiotherapy, 
I went to Thailand, fasted in the jungle on an island for 11 days and just ate mud and did transcendental meditation, uh, like shamanic breath work, um, everything that you can think of. And some of it worked for some of the time. Oh, yeah, had like like colonic irrigation to clear out my system whilst not eating for another 11 days somewhere else. I was prepared to try everything, anything to calm my body down and to stop the incessant pain. This was all done in my teaching holidays because I was still teaching. I was, that was the last thing I was going to give up. I, I very rarely took a sick day. And if I did take a sick day, not that there's anything wrong with sick days. We all must look after ourselves. But for me, it was the thing that gave me value when everything else was going to shit. When I felt like I was putting on weight, my muscle tone had disappeared, couldn't work out, couldn't walk, couldn't run anymore. I could walk, but it was agonizing. Um, I was always flaking on my friends' birthday parties and socializing, couldn't go dancing. All the things that made me feel good, relationships suffered, um, broke up with my boyfriend because I just wasn't myself. Uh, so everything else hit the shit, hit the shit, hit the skids, sorry. <laughs> okay, oh yeah, but I kept my job. So I got seconded to the European Commission and I ended up in Italy in a place called Varese, which is between Lake Como, Lake Maggiore by the Swiss mountains. So for three years. And then I just drove down there with my sister all my stuff in my car, had a little shack, well, beautiful little shack, really, up in the mountains in Sacramonte, and this new job in the European Commission School, where everybody spoke Italian, and I didn't, and I thought, this is great, what I need with all my chronic pain and all of the issues I'm carrying is just a fresh start, so my sister went back, my parents who'd flown in to settle me, and they went back, and I'm like, right, now I'm alone in the Italian mountains with no infrastructure, no doctor, no chiropractor, can't speak Italian. I'll be great. I'll be absolutely fine. I feel like a real person now. And really quickly realized that I was going down the flume of disaster into one of the worst pain periods of my entire life. Because in this effort to fight my condition and pretend I was fine, I was actually making myself worse. So yeah, I ended up sitting on the balcony of my little Italian, what's it, after like the days of no sleep, unspeakable agony that was making me vomit, the pain was making me vomit. Uh, and it's all the time. Imagine having like toothache round one side of your body all the time. And I was going to throw myself off the balcony that I was at that point, I shuffled right to the end, it was 2am. I, um, I was done with the pain, I didn't necessarily want to die. I wanted to number one, turn the pain off. Um, number two, stop being the person who was struggling for my family. Um, and I know that when I told them that, obviously, to it, seeing that from a different perspective much later in life, you realize that your family would rather have you around being a pain in the ass or whatever, bothering them about your pain forever rather than not have you around. But at that time, I just didn't want to be phoning my mom or my dad or my sister and still being in agony, still not being who I used to be and hearing the worry in their voices. So I was done. And I looked through my wallet and in my wallet, I was like looking at pictures in my purse as I sat on this balcony in my pit of despair. And then I got, there was a card and I flipped it over. It was from my chiropractor at home. And on the back of it was written a phone number. And he'd written it down there when I left saying, if you need anything, I saw this guy at a conference. He was great. Call him. I think he's near where you're going. So I saw it and I thought, mm -mm. and there was some deliberation, some moments on the balcony. Do I phone this number and see if he can help? Or do I just, I've seen enough people. I've had enough diagnosis. I've heard enough bullshit. I can't deal with any more misdiagnosis. No one knows what's wrong with me. I'm a broken human being. So I left this kind of snot bubbly, heaving, bad Italian message on his voicemail in the night. Oh, please, can I come and see you? I, I'm in so much, I'm so bad, you know, stomale, and in this, in this terrible broken Italian that I don't even know how they understood it. And the next morning I got a message straight away, this little voicemail saying, you must, you must come in, come in today, please come in today. So I went to see them, drove to Como, and uh, he studied me, did some chiropractic, which always helps me, chiropractic. It realigns me and relieves pain, but it only lasts a day or two. And he said, right, we need to scan you because I think there's something else wrong with you. And his wife's a dentist, they scanned my head and he said, right, 
we know what's wrong with you. And I'm like, yeah, sure, because everyone always thinks they know what's wrong and no one does. And he said, you have a problem with your jaw and your jaw is misaligned and your condyle joint in your jaw is not quite working properly, which means that your teeth aren't meeting properly and evenly, which means it's skewing your vision and skewing your cranium slightly and it's causing torsion um, through your TMJ, which is causing torsion through how you see and your balance and telling part of your body to constantly come up and twist just in a minuscule amount all the time so it's pulling you know your joints out of position and your muscles are spasming and moving around because your eyes aren't seeing correctly and your jaw is twisted um and we can fix you and I lost it because I'd never heard something that made quite so much sense at the same time that didn't make so much sense. For me, it was like no one had ever said this before. People had shrugged. People had got it's your feet turning in. You have to start at the bottom. And people had said, oh, it's your posture. It's start at the top. You've got a disc bulge. Oh, it's this. None of it was true. This was really unique and new. So I thought, right, do I do this or do I die? Do I do it or do I do it or do I do it? I'm so tired. I'm so tired of all these things that never work. And I've got an endless pot of ebullience, really. But I realized then it's not endless. You can't just keep every day like Tigger going, and today I'll just see what happens and give it my best shot. And it might be better today. And I did that for years and I'd run out. Then I thought, well, may as well, one last shot. So started the process of wearing a bike plate in my mouth, braces, realigning my teeth over two years which was a roller coaster of financial roller coaster, but also agony as they moved the teeth around in my mouth and changed my jaw and my bite and kind of the height of my teeth and how my jaw sat. It put my body through unspeakable turmoil of getting it balanced. And then after about 18 months, a year to 18 months, it really started to make a difference. Like my pain was receding. And then it was like, it was like, I could trust my body again. When I moved, my hip didn't slip out of position. I wasn't always twisted and in torsion. My hip bones lay flat when I lay on my bed rather than one being high because it's twisted out of space. My shoulders stopped twisting around. I didn't have to sling my arm, my right arm anymore because it was had been so painful. So I started walking further and further. And then I started, I, I called up some people at home, Fitness Wild in Cornwall, who are fabulous, Ben and Jimmy, and explained to them, this is me. I'm coming home for the whole summer. I, I can move, but I don't trust my body very much. And my movement patterns are very bad because I've been in agony for so many years. Can you help me? And they were like, absolutely. And they started doing remote weight sessions with me. And then when I got home, they assessed me and started building me up with proper weight training. Then I started running. Then I did trail running. Then I started running longer distances. Then I was like, oh my God. Because the whole time that was happening, I was like, any minute now, my body's going to go, ha, psych, get back in bed. You're fucked. Um, but it didn't. It just got stronger and stronger and stronger. And I'm like, I nearly killed myself, but this was round the fucking corner. I tried everything all over the world. And this is something that was out there that's new and I had no idea about and has changed my life. So still now I live on the precipice of tomorrow might be the day it gets shit again. And like a Stockholm syndrome with the pain. Like my pain was my friend. What? Oh, where's the pain gone? Who am I without my pain? But um, yeah. And then I thought, what the hell am I going to do with this body that I nearly gave away, that I nearly died, you know, lost? I'm going to take it and see where we can go. And that's when I started thinking, yeah, I never used to think I was sporty. In fact, I felt like just the biggest blimp, horrendous, toneless disaster through most of my pain. And now I can be strong. Even if I'm in my late 30s, early 40s, I doesn't, I'm not 20. I can't take a, I could take a picture of me in a bikini staring, looking at Crater Lake. Um, you know, in the sun, but uh, it wouldn't look quite like the ones on Instagram do. But fuck that shit. That's not what being outdoorsy is all about. That's an absolutely horrendous misnomer about what it is to be strong and outdoorsy. It's just pushing your own boundaries and stepping outdoors and finding everything it has to offer for you. Adventure in every sense. So I would hike the Appalachian Trail. I'd read Bill Bryson's book when I was 19 on a train, of course, full of trains. And I thought that's what I wanted to do my whole life. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it southbound because southbound's really fucking hard. So 
I'll do, we'll, me and my body, who's now my best mate, will do it the hard way. And I made friends with my pain. That was another turning point. I wasn't fighting my pain anymore. After that night on the balcony, I was like, you and me, babe, we're here now together in this body. I'm not going to try and keep pushing you out and ignoring you. Let's be pals. So my pain and I, we discuss most mornings, what do you feel like today? Oh, I feel like just sitting around. I'm like, mm, could you go for a couple miles? Okay, we'll go so it's me and my pain on an adventure ride together to show that anything is possible no matter who you are what you look like or what you've been through hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host how did you fail to tell me all of that I didn't want to. In the beginning, I was like, oh, I don't know if I always want to tell this story. It's boring. And then I got excited because actually, um, I'm sorry if it went on too long, but actually, it's ex- I still can't believe it. And I feel like when I tell it, it's a joyful story of like resolution. And even though it's my story, when I tell it out loud, it re-reminds me that there are lessons in that that I can use today. Like today I woke up and I was feeling a little bit like I don't know where I'm going for the next week. I've just got this car and it might all go wrong. And should I just be out here traveling around when I, my CDT plans didn't work out? And I tell that story and I'm like, fuck yeah, there's something amazing around every corner. Uh, and that's a great reminder, I think. So thanks for listening. <laughs> well, it's quite hard to hear. I mean, you know, if you really do listen to it, it's not just a... You know, it's not just, oh, just sat here, you know, Gail's telling a story, la, la, la. I mean, that's really serious. You know, I think you, and obviously you kind of have to when you tell stories like that to people you've only just met. But you, I mean, I assume you weren't talking like, people always say, oh, my God, it's so hot out here, I'm going to die. You know, you were, you're being serious, right? You were going to throw yourself off the balcony. Yeah, I am being very serious. Um, I... I think, and I lost a very, very dear friend uh, a number of years later who came to see me in Italy and came to see me in Hong Kong when I lived there afterwards to have fun with me and adventure. I lost him to suicide about eight weeks after he'd last come to see me in Hong Kong. And he was like a great sportsman and very vibrant and really popular, but struggled with his mental health and feeling not worthy. And I think um, when he died, Obviously, a lot of people feel angry um, and betrayed by him and cross that he didn't say anything to them. And and we, we, we all understand those feelings. Um, but I, I had been there so close to that moment. And I felt like I had a deeper... Oh, sorry, I feel suddenly a bit emotional. I tell this story sometimes, not about Andrew, but just about my story. But I think when people lose their will, to want to carry on and fight through something. And he was still fighting. He wasn't trying to befriend his um, pain. He was definitely trying to push through it and pretend it wasn't happening and he was okay. And he'd reach out in his worst moments, but other than that, he didn't want anyone to think he was weak. And I definitely think that because I'd been so close to just sliding off that balcony into all those kind of green pine trees below me that look so soft and welcoming I understand that it's not cowardly and it's not something that someone does because they're selfish they people get to that point because there's nowhere else to go because they 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 have carried something for so long and they've used every single iota of energy that they have and they just want to put it down and it's just too heavy so um it was serious and it was my family, really, that made me just go, I'm going to call this number, not for me. I'm going to call this number for my mum and my dad and my sister, who have whose lives will be worse, even though I think it will be better, but whose lives will be worse, and they don't deserve that. So I've got, I've got to carry on one more day. And I carried on one more day, and my life is amazing. 
and I can now give back for the rest of my life. Oh, sorry, Matt, I didn't expect to get so sad. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, so I'll always be giving back for that, for Andrew. Who <laughs> didn't bring tissues because we were laughing so much. <laughs> Okay, I'm back on my game. I'm back on my game. <laughs> you want to have a minute or are you all right? No, I'm okay. I'm okay. Because you've just got to be real. Otherwise, you can't help and you can't really share a story if you're faking it. So anything that comes with telling a story that's hard is real. And if, you, if you're not telling a hard story, honestly, how can you expect anyone to... to, to, to if you want to help people, they've got to see... You know, I hope that makes sense, that garbled little moment. But um, I think I think it can be the making of you. And it shows how much courage you have if you can carry on. If you can, if you can just get to tomorrow. So if you're out there and you're listening to this, just get to tomorrow. You know, just one more day. And then one more day. And then, like me, wonderful things can happen at any time, I think. And that's joyful. Yeah, I think it is. So I wrote down almost within five minutes of us starting to chat this. Uh, I I wrote it in the words say the pain doesn't define her. Because, well, and that that's my next question, I suppose, because I was expecting, you know, I said, who are you at the start? And deliberately this time I was half thinking, well, she's probably going to mention it because that's kind of one of the big, you know, defining traits, surely. And I think it's, you know, I don't want to pass judgment on whether that's good or not, but I don't think it does define you, does it? No, uh, the pain has never defined me. Um, if anything defines me, it's, uh, the, it's joy, the seeking of joy and, oppor- you know, like, and hope. It, yeah, because... It's always there. You just have to find a way to access it in any situation. And that terrible cliche, like, it may be cloudy, but above that, there is blue sky. It's just on the other side of the cloud. <laughs> I know that's just absolute horse shit, but it is like, it does have roots in reality because today and tomorrow and last week and last year may have been horrendous, but there is still joy. You just have to carve your way through to it. It's still there. You still deserve it. Um, And that's what I kind of hung my hat on because I love to laugh. And actually that can really go against you when you're struggling and trying to tell people you're in pain. Because if you're, if, and I talk about this in my book a bit with people with chronic illnesses, if your way of coping is to find levity and to find some silver lining in a day, yet you are signed off work, yet you are not being 100% as a partner or a sibling or a daughter or a parent because you're struggling, it doesn't mean that you're not allowed to laugh and find levity and joy. And I think some people who have a chronic illness that's invisible punish themselves further by not allowing themselves to be seen to be enjoying their lives for the fear that people seeing them will think that they're not telling the truth about their condition. So that, and and I'm not really sure how we solve that, apart from discussing it and saying, you can have those two things existing concurrently. You can have someone who's suffering silently and and invisibly, who needs space and time away from work or away from a parenting duty or a caring role, who can also be seen to be having a coffee in a cafe with a friend with their head thrown back laughing for 10 minutes because that might be the thing that's keeping them alive. Um, And it doesn't mean that when they go home, they don't have to take 10 different pills and then lie down for two hours because they've run out of energy. So that's a bigger, wider discussion. But yeah, joy. Joy and hope that things can be better. Well, I mean, it's not a bad way, you know, that particular point, it's not a bad way to live your life, is it? No. No, it's sometimes hard. I get the blues. I get the blues. I have like, uh, I have a sometimes, you know, a difficult brain. Sometimes I feel really sad, get a bit depressed. But I think we all do. It's part of life these days as well. You too? Okay, yeah. It's part of all of us and it's being honest and not thinking that you have to have terrifying chronic depression to be able to say I get depressed because, you you know, it's a spectrum and we're all on it. But that's interesting. I wasn't expecting to go here necessarily. But so what's your view on using, I have to phrase this really carefully, but using those things as excuses 
to avoid dealing with something. So, oh, I'm depressed or, oh, no, I'm anxious. So I'm anxious, so I can't do X, Y and Z or I I can't engage with X, Y and Z. Um, So if we're talking about trusting people to uh, about what they're what's going on inside, whether it's physical, invisible or mental, invisible, if I'm saying I, uh, I trust you that you're having a f- coffee with a friend and laughing, but you're also in chronic pain. I also have to trust when someone says, I can't come to work today because I'm anxious, or I can't come on this trip I said I'd come on with you that we've planned because I've suddenly gone into a depression. I have to trust that. But what I, I, can't, I can't second guess somebody. But that person needs to exist in a society where they feel confident enough to say what's really going on, which is, I don't want to. So that's a separate conversation potentially from mental health issues. It's allowing us to not have to be heroes all the time, to always be overachieving, to always be on, to keep up with each other on social media, to be an Instagram, you know, like, woo, I'm so popular. So that's another different related conversation. It's okay to say you don't want to do something. It's okay to not be rushing around achieving everything. Um, So... Once people feel that they can say that, and obviously you don't let people down if you can help it, that's a different thing. But uh, once it, once it's okay to just be a regular person saying, I don't want to, then people don't have to use those things as excuses. Because the more we use them as excuses, the less likely it is people get believed, and then no one's allowed to go and have a coffee when they have chronic pain and have a laugh. Yeah, agreed. So I'm really interested as to what happened when because obviously you didn't get some miracle cure like I started taking a tablet and it worked on day one but once you did get this feeling of hey it's me and my body against the world because my body's amazing what did you do I started doing some trail running I did a few little trail running races and I'm so used to doing things and then having to not do them at the last minute so I've like signed up for so many mini triathlons with my sister or my friends or swimming races or cycling races and I start to train and I pay the fee because that means it will happen even if it's six months where I paid for it so it will happen and then I get close to it and I've trained too hard or I, I push my body far beyond what it can do because it's a painful body and then I can't do it and then I just have um, so I did an, enter some trail running races and stuff, and I'm like, I'm just going to enjoy looking at the course. So this is another thing I started to do. I started loving the planning of things. So my my boyfriend can sometimes be annoyed with me um, and say, oh, you always plan everything. I just like to be spontaneous. And I'm like, well, I like to plan. I'm never used to. And it's because I ultimately would never be able to do the frigging thing. So I would enjoy all of the stages, writing out the training routine, looking at the route, looking at photos of the route, planning how it would happen, how I'd get there, where I'd stay, what it'd be like. And then ultimately I wouldn't be able to go, but I'd have lived it in my head. So I started to do one races and actually do them and actually cross the finish line. I think it was like a 5K was my first thing I managed to actually get across the finish line. And like um, like a, t- or a mini tough mudder in Cornwall with some of my girlfriends. You should have seen my sister and her husband and my mum and dad were like, yeah, as if I'd like won the Olympics because I'd done it. I'd trained for it. I'd got across the line and I was able to do it. Um, so I, I just started building up my confidence with things like that and walking further and the weight training really really helped um I wasn't looking to bulk up just to get strong and I got to know my body again slowly um you know how my body moved what it liked when it was balanced and when it wasn't balanced mindfully listening to where my body was in space because I'm hypermobile I have crap proprioception I can't tell if my legs over there or over there you know like if I'm not looking at it so so I've had to learn all of that again and I have a great osteopath and a great chiropractor Um, And then I didn't train that much for the Appalachian Trail. I did some hiking. I did some hikes in Wales with um, a good friend called Andy. And um, the most I'd ever camped in a tent was for like three days at a festival, waking up surrounded by empty Strongbow cans. So that was my preparation. (laughs) Well, God, I... I'm going to make a bold decision, right? And let, if you're cool with it. So I think there's a whole podcast, a whole part two called Cold Turkey in Appalachia. Yes, I'd love that. 
I'm kind of keen to not go there because I think walking the Appalachian Trail anyway is an interesting, exciting thing, but accidentally having to get over an accidental codeine addiction is an interesting banner to, you know, to, 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 <laughs> to approach the kind of the, the conversation with. But um, yeah, so I'm going to gloss straight over the Appalachian Trail. Sorry, everyone. Um, if you, yeah, okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Seriously significant thing that I did. Um, but no, I thought, I thought the way, because I'm conscious of time, I thought maybe you could just tell me the story about walking the West Highland Way. Oh, yeah. So um, that was with my really good friend, Chris Hellengar, who is the founder of Copperfield Breast Cancer Charity. She lives in Cornwall too. We met at a talk. We both did a talk in London at O'Meara um, like two years ago. It's only been a two-year friendship, I think, so far. Maybe a bit longer. And she said, um, maybe three years, I can't remember, but she said to me that, uh, so what was hilarious, she's, you know, got a real platform. And so she should have won a Pride of Britain award. She, you know, she's now written a fabulous book, which is out soon. And uh, she's got a platform. There was somebody else who'd climbed nearly all the peaks, the seven peaks, a, a woman. And she's great too. And she like run all of the big desert marathons. So the desert marathon, she was on first. No, yeah, she was on first. Chris Hallinger was on next. And I got the final slot of the evening. And I hadn't even hiked the Appalachian Trail yet. <laughs> And Chris said to me later, she said, I didn't know who you were, but you got up there and gave this amazing talk and you hadn't even done the fucking thing. And you didn't even know if you were going to be able to do it. And she's like, and I knew I needed you to be my mate. So <laughs> that girl. So uh, from there, we've been, we've been besties. And I'm so glad because I wanted to be her friend forever. Um, and so we decided, I said to her, have you ever been done anything like Highland, West Highway. She's like, no. I said, do you want to come? She's like, fuck yeah. So um, we, it was like, we tried to go and do the Tour de Mont Blanc, which is what we really wanted to do. I've always really wanted to do that. And I wanted to do it the year before, and it was all booked, and it got cancelled for COVID. We booked it all again, had to cancel it all, COVID's still happening. So we're like, where can we go in the UK that's legal and safe? Oh, we always want to do Scotland. We love Scotland. Okay, so off we went to Scotland. And what was super interesting is that I was the leader, of the, you know, between us, the person who'd done the big hikes, etc. And she hadn't. Yet I felt a little bit at sea because I was like, I'm so resilient, been through chronic pain. Yes, done things. I can just pop out of COVID and lockdown and be like, hello, world, back to it. It was really freaking weird to be around people, to be out of a four-walled building, you know, and roaming again. So I found it more challenging than I thought coming out of lockdown and doing something like that. Quickly got in our stride. Chris is like, can cope with anything. So she was brilliant. Her toenails got ripped off. Her feet were bleeding, blisters everywhere. And she's just soldiering on, you know, talking about cats and glitter <laughs> and being absolutely brilliant. Um, so she did great. We did great. And we had an amazing time together. Um, and Scotland is beautiful. And it's, I didn't find it a challenging walk physically, even though I wasn't, um, I'm not particularly fit, as fit as I was anyway, before lockdown, which I think all of us are potentially, most of us might be struggling with. But um, I did find it challenging mentally, definitely, uh, to be, to just recalibrate that I was allowed outside and there was freedom. Um, Chris found it quite challenging physically, quite tiring, but she never gives up, never gives in. Um, and she's very mentally strong and was very prepared for it. So we had a ball and we're planning to do the Tour de Mont Blanc together next year. I don't know. I've, I've kind of, I feel like I'm doing a bit of a this is your life accidentally, but, um, and I've already asked you, I've never asked anyone before, I don't think like, oh, how did it feel to tell that story? But now that you've kind of done, you know, we walked the West Highland Way and now we're going to go and do Mont Blanc, or uh, Tour de Mont Blanc, and I walked the West Highland Way and, oh, and it wasn't physically that difficult. It's like, oh, wasn't it? Because, you know, I can, can you imagine a world where you say that? No. Yeah, I've never thought about it like that before. Like, if you take that gale and put her next to this gale, they're very different creatures. The journey I've taken has made me into a really different person, I think. Um, 
And I'm not trying to be like, oh, and I'm so fit, so it wasn't hard difficulty. Clearly, I was out of breath and on a number of occasions. <laughs> I'm not an athlete. But what I mean was, it wasn't like, I did the Southwest Coast Path last year, um, obviously being from Cornwall. That was, I mean, that is a stonking walk. It's freaking amazing, but so hard, really. It's like Maine on the Appalachian Trail, which we're not allowed to talk about, so forget that. Um, it's very up and down and hard. Um, so, yeah, I... I yeah, I just love that it doesn't matter how old, in fact, old is the wrong word, doesn't matter what age you become, there's still more things to learn about yourself and still more places to grow and still more directions and curiosities that you'd never considered previously. It's like every year that you get, that you age, <laughs> every year that you age is like another little gift, it's like another little present to unwrap and be like, what's going to happen this year? Woohoo, look! It's the CDT. Oh, fuck it. No, it's not. It's something else. No, it's Alaska. <laughs> it's my 43rd year. My 44th year. Who knows? Best-selling children's author. Who knows? TV documentaries. TV documentaries, yes. Louis Threw, the female Louis Threw. That's the goal. <laughs> hey, well, look, I've got a camera. We can make that happen. Yes, let's do that. Seriously, please. I've been doing loads of YouTube filming, and I'm so bad at the editing. I've got, like, this much film and this much skill (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah it's skill you just need passion um got that got that in spades so that's a good segue where are you now and why oh so this is fun um i'm in mulkit Muckle, Muckle Tio, Muckle Tio. So what happened was I, I waited for two weeks in Mexico to get into the US because I had my PCT, Pacific Crest Trail permit for last year. All bought, finally got it, waited in queue for ages online in the bin. Uh, the Tero in New Zealand in the bin. So I'm like, right, I need to do something even harder because I haven't been allowed to do the PCT, the Teoroa. I'm going to hike the CDT Southwest, the Continental Divide, the hardest of the three triple ground trails longest hardest kind of most remote not hardest physically 80s probably hardest physically so I planned and prepped and was excited um kept me focused I was writing my book I was like and I've still got this adventure cooking with some friends in the US waited in Mexico that 14 day thing is a lie by the way if you're thinking of trying to get into the US that way um it's actually 16 days when I got my flights to the US refused um on day 15.5 thinking Smugly, I'd sorted it because I'd given myself an extra day in case of any problems. Uh, The man said you can't get on the flight because you need to have 14 days where you get up and go to bed, whole days. And I'd arrived at 7am on the first day, that day doesn't count. And I was leaving at like 6pm on the last day, day 15 and a half doesn't count. Has to be 24 hour period. So I waited 16 days to get into the US. Made my way by train, love trains across the north of America, chatting to interesting people, getting their life stories, and then got off on the Canadian border with my friends, met my friends who are great hikers over here, um, and then went south through Glacier National Park, the Bob Marshall Wilderness, and I didn't enjoy it like I thought I was going to enjoy it. This is something I've been looking forward to for a year. I focused on, um, and it wasn't right, and I don't you know, I kind of know why it wasn't right. It wasn't right because it's lots of people's final trail of the Crippled Crown. So it's definitely something that's, um, is you have to go fast and people are very focused because by this time they've kind of dialed in all their gear and they're, a lot of people are ultra light and ultra, ultra, ultra. You know, it's like, I look at my pack, it weighs a sparrow's fart and I can do 40 miles and hey, I'm dropping 40 bombs all over the place through the mountain ranges and um, competitive even though they say they're not competitive there's a lot of kind of trail you know, athletes that do it and that was not my bag after COVID I did I thought I was ready for something like that physically I just wasn't fit enough yet to keep up with these people these lovely friends of mine we started through Glacier and it was like 17 miles a day from the get-go or something the first few days fine that's fine 20 21 fine 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 then it's 25 miles a day and then we're in the Bob Marshall wilderness climbing over 300 fallen pine trees with all of their debris um getting scratched in high temperatures with smoke from the fires coming through and then you know still do it then they're like should we do 28 miles today should we do 30 miles tomorrow and I'm like I'm not having any fun like I can do it, but I'm in tears and my feet are falling apart and I'm not seeing any of the beautiful scenery. And I feel like I don't want to go fast now. 
after lockdown, I feel like I've changed for a minute. And I wanted to stop and sit by a lake and look for moose. And I wanted to chat to the horse pack, you know, thing that came through, like 17 horses with all of their supplies to clear the trails. And they're in the woods for 10 days at a time, living off their horses and camping by the creeks. I want to chat to them. I want to ask them all about their gear and where they came from and why they wanted to do this kind of job. And the guys that I love that I was with were like, right, we got, we're going, I don't fucking want to. So in the end, it just was a disconnect. I don't want to rush through beautiful parts of this country where I don't live and that I don't get to come and see easily. And I don't want to hold back people who are set on completing a humongously amazing task of this continental divide trail. I don't want to be the person who's like, can we negotiate on mileage? Because everyone should do exactly what they want to do. And I didn't want to be hiking it on my own either because it's with BDT and it's grizzly country and we needed to be really in groups of people um, because, it was, you know, there'd been a grizzly attack. The woman was pulled out of her tent 20 minutes away from the trail and killed by a grizzly while I was there. Um, and there are more grizzlies than ever. And that's great for them. <laughs> but It's not great for me when I'm slower and want to take in the scenery. So I made the decision and then the fire started and all the trails being rerouted and the big sky kind of reroute hundreds of miles being chopped off the trail for people because of the closures by the rangers the views had all gone because it was thick smoke in the air from washington coming up from idaho and it was really hot and i just thought why i'm not having fun and then i thought i'm being a wuss i'm not pushing hard enough it was my pain and on the appalachian trail i just keep pushing with my broken foot and i hiked 800 miles with a broken foot what's wrong with me i'm not brave anymore and then I'm like or am I just different for a minute and that's okay and I thought yeah you know what I'm gonna do what my gut says so I got off trail with a good friend of mine two weeks ago we hung out for a few days did hiking shot some guns don't know what anyone thinks about that I didn't want to touch the guns but these are marine veterans who told me that it would be safe so they they showed me how to shoot some guns out in the middle of nowhere which was quite fun but I don't think I did again um and rode on the back of Harley Davidson up through America, back up to the trip for a few hours, um, which I've never done before. And then I just got on a ferry to Alaska, and I was on a ferry to Alaska, public ferry for three nights and three days, met some really interesting people, um, and then have been traveling around Alaska for a week, and I've just flown back into Seattle, and I'm staying in a house with somebody I met 10 days ago through a friend from Instagram who invited me to stay for dinner, and then we all got on so well, they um, gifted me a pair of wonderful binoculars for my trip. And then I've come back here and they've just said, we're not there, but stay. And I'm like, take the binoculars. They're like, no, take them for the rest of your trip. So I'm just saying that just as an example of how, you know, people are wonderful. People give joy. And then because they gave me the binoculars, when I got to Anchorage, I gave uh, someone on the street my new Thermarest uh, sleep mat because he said, that looks nice. I don't really get a good night's sleep. And I said, have my thermo rest mat and I hope you have a great night's sleep and then I took my shoes off on a corner intersection gave them to another man who had rubbish shoes on and went and bought myself some new shoes because I could which is great for me but it's also great for him that he got a nice new pair of shoes as well so um I'm like someone does something nice for you and you want to pay it forward to somebody else and now maybe they've had a better day so there's a lot of that going on at the moment for me as well passing the love around <laughs> I'm turning into a hippie and I'm picking up a car today and I'm just driving around Washington and Oregon and I don't know where I'm going but there we go and then I'm going to the east coast and I'm going to hike the little portion of the Smokies that I had to not do on the Appalachian Trail because of a blizzard and I'm going to go to Dollywood and maybe ride some horses somewhere and then I'm coming home for my book launch sorry that's too much you only asked me where I am <laughs> it's great I have two questions for you I always ask them I would appreciate it if you would interpret these questions however you wish what scares you? Oh, camping by myself, which I'm not supposed to say because I look like I'm really brave. Um, and what else scares me? Don't know. Drowning. <laughs> They're such good, like, as in, after everything we've just talked about over the last hour or so, camping by yourself, which is said, by the way, with a smile on your face, and drowning. I think you can be, you can have big adventures like I do. And I am scared of camping by myself. 
but doesn't mean that you have to pretend you're not scared. I don't like doing it. I'll avoid it if I can. I wish I was better at it. I want to be one of those women or men who go, and I'm just going to go and put my tent up and I don't care if anyone kills me or eats me. Um, it's cool because I don't have any fear. I'm not. And I don't know if they really are. I'm sure they are really very brave, but I'm not. So I'm just trying to tell you, you can be a wuss about some things and still have a fucking great time. <laughs> Uh, what brings you hope? Oh, every, the next minute, next five minutes, what brings me hope? That there's always a way to make someone smile. Do you know, there really is. You just got to find it. The grumpiest bastard, the moodiest person, the saddest person, there will be a way to make just a corner of their mouth go up a little bit or their eyes sparkle a little bit. And if you can find that, when they feel like they want to be miserable, you know there's hope. That's lovely. Okay. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Matt. Right on. <laughs>